This morning we're once again in Acts. Today we're in chapter 14. I'm going to touch on parts of the entire chapter, but I want us to read uh, the first 20 verses together. There we go. Last week in this service I had some technical difficulties. Those were my fault. And this map was unavailable. So I wanted to show it to you this morning. Now this picks up all the way back in chapter 12 when Barnabas and Paul were commissioned. Um, the, the Spirit prompted the church in Antioch to send them out. And their focus was to reach beyond the Jews. But it is their practice to go to the synagogue and then, of course, to the Gentiles. And uh, that's everyone who isn't a Jew. And uh, so we saw in chapter 12, 13, how they uh, uh, went to Cyprus, to Salamis and Paphos. And we talked about the fact that it was Sergius Paulus, whose name I couldn't remember and called that dude last week. <laughs> Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, it was suggested that they, uh, he recommended that they, they move to Pisidia Antioch, which you can see at the top of the screen, and today uh, they make their way to Iconium and then on to Lystra, and that's going to be the focus, and then on to Der Derby. So that gives you some sense of where they are. If you don't know where this is, this is just off the Mediterranean. You see Jerusalem down there uh, in the very right-hand right corner. So that may give you some orientation. Now, in chapter 14, let's, uh, let's read... Uh, together. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual, or just as they was their practice, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively, uh, or in the same way uh, as he had in chapter 13, where we got a good sense of, of what Paul said when he, when he told people the gospel, um, that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miracles, miraculous signs, and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian uh, language, the gods have come down to us in human form. 
Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths or garlands to the city uh, because he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human, like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, He let all nations go their way, yet He has not left Himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. I was reminded this week, uh, it's a statement I've heard many times before, millions of Americans suffer from depression. Someone close to me has suffered from clinical depression. In his case, medication, uh, SSRIs, uh, selective serotonin, serotonin reuptake uh, inhibitors, uh, was prescribed to help him manage the debilitating effects of his depression. Now, to many, this is needed help, but in his case, although helpful, he grew frustrated with the effects. He told me, my emotions are flatlined. I no longer have the lows, which were terrible, but there are no highs either. I can't live like this. I'm not me anymore. Today, he's greatly improved with prayer and counsel and hard work. He's thriving after a couple of long years. But N.T. Wright also mentioned a, a similar experience of a friend of his who testified to him all the highs and lows disappeared. I just felt like a cow mooching around never getting excited about anything. Now that's vivid imagery. I mean, since we live in the Valley of the Cows, you might ask yourself, when was the last time you just had to stop the car to enjoy the lively shenanigans of a lively bunch of cows feeding? But this brought to mind this this uh, matter of highs and lows, the absence of intensity. And it brings to mind the church and the experiences of uh, Paul and Barnabas here in chapter 14, which tells you a little bit about how my mind works. There are highs and lows in chapter 14 that are virtually alien to the church today. 
the church of Western society. America, Europe. You won't find much in the way of persecution. You won't find much in the way of signs and wonders. The church seems comfortable in the middle. No highs, but no lows. Popular religion, wrote C.S. Lewis in his book Miracles, excludes miracles because it excludes a God who does anything at all. Sometimes I fear that somehow we've become susceptible to that kind of thinking. I mean, if popular religion is taking a medicinal concoction of cultural secularism and science and materialism that amounts to practical atheism, it's no wonder popular religion and sometimes even the church is just mooching around like cows. The thing is, and this has always been God's game plan, His way of working. He works through ordinary people. He works through you. And He works through me. Jesus' people stand apart from popular religion because Jesus' people believe in the living and true God. Even when it goes against the grain of secularism, atheistic science, there's good science, and then there's science that operates on presuppositions, uh, predetermined worldview of materialism and physicality in which there is can be no God. And they use science to validate that. But the very means of science has no way of measuring God. And there are other reasonable ways of experiencing that. And materialism. Materialism that just is the purpose and even the, the vital engine of our culture. And when these things get into our heart, it anesthetizes us. It numbs us. Reduces us to a mooching kind of life. Here we see that Jesus' people serve the living and true God. That may seem uh, like a duh. <laughs> But what I want us to appreciate is how vital that is in three ways. There are three constants to the experience that I see of Paul and Barnabas here in chapter 14 that becomes the foundation of the uh, occurrences and the occasions when God works in ways to prove his gospel to validate his power. But it's those constants, that is, that they serve the living and true God that I want us to appreciate this morning. We don't have to make a test case of persecution or signs and wonders. I'm not suggesting, in fact, it goes against the grain of what I think 
what I know Paul and Barnabas are doing here in 14 to say I have to validate or somehow justify my faith by seeking persecution or seeking opposition or seeking signs and wonders and seeking special experiences, seeking those highs and lows. Those highs and lows are always in concert with God's Word and especially the working of His Gospel. But if we seek them independently, then we get our eyes off the very constant in which God wants to demonstrate Himself. Paul and Barnabas don't seek persecution and opposition. And they don't seek signs and wonders. It's never about that. The highs and the lows that we see here in Acts chapter 14 come as a result of a constant. These occurrences, these occasions, are the result of a constant. And that constant is that they serve the living and true God. And they do it in three ways. Let me just uh, introduce them to you. They serve Him by magnifying the Gospel. They serve Him with humility. And they serve Him through opposition. Through opposition. When it comes. When it you know, when, it, when we talk about magnifying the Gospel, you remember Paul and Barnabas were, were commissioned by the Holy Spirit. Um, it, this this is, is not to exclude us from talking to people around us, to those close to us, whether they be family, neighbors, friends, co-workers, uh, people we play with, talking to them about Jesus Christ. But I want to get to something more heartfelt or central to our purpose and motivation, and that is that we, we just are oriented to the Gospel. That, that's our purpose. That the Gospel has touched us, done an extraordinary work in us, and that, and that causes us to want others to experience and know in their lives the truth and the reality of what God has done in ours. That creates the fertile soil in our daily life for being oriented and being mindful of God in our lives. And here, the sign and the wonder of this man being healed in chapter 14 when Paul comes to um, <laughs> having another brain freeze, that place. <laughs> you recall in verse 3, uh, when they got to um, Iconium, they're putting an emphasis on the gospel. It's, it's pretty profound, in fact, that uh, there are all kinds of, of grammatical ways that are quite striking in which there's carryover. In other words, they're doing the same things just as they did on, uh, on Cyprus, now on the mainland and up in Antioch, Pisidia. Now they're doing the same thing here in Iconium. And that is, they're sharing the gospel, they're going into the synagogues. And we, there's really a carryover sense that just as Paul preached where he put the emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus, he's doing that as he speaks now in Iconium. And then it says that they encountered 
resistance, opposition. Uh, some of the Jews resisted what they were saying, didn't like what they were saying, and stirred up others against them. And that's why Paul and Barnabas stayed there longer. But it was in that interim period, while they continued to teach and talk about the Lord and strengthen those who had responded to the gospel, that uh, there was the occurrence and occasion for God to show up. In, and it says it was through their hands that they did these signs and these wonders. So in other words, the signs and wonders follow this greater purpose, the gospel. And that's what we always have to have our eyes on. We don't seek signs and wonders. They come. And when we're pursuing the gospel, we have a heart and an eye to see what God is doing in a way that when we're just under the, 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 the pall, the umbrella, the influence, the shadow of our culture, which is so... Uh, atheistic, there's no room for God, we don't, uh, we don't see that. And we're not minded of it. In Acts 2, when we were just starting out, we saw that the Holy Spirit was poured out on His church. He's the vehicle of God's power in people and these signs and wonders. In Acts 2, we saw that where Christ is preeminent, that is where we elevate and give Him first place, the Spirit is prominent. The Spirit's always close at hand where Jesus is central to what we're doing. And sometimes it's, I think, helpful to ask, how might we handle miracles? We'll see here in this chapter how we should. But when you think of miracles, don't think of TV evangelists. Think of Paul in chapter 14, verses 8, 9, and 10. And I think this bears out what I'm trying to give us a, a picture of. Where he heals this lame man. That is, God through him. Now we're not, Paul, we're not told what Paul was saying. But we know from what has gone before that he's talking about Jesus. He's not in a synagogue. Where they are now, and I don't know why I cannot come up with the, the name, um, Lystra, Lystra, excuse me. Um, here in Lystra, there is not a, a strong contingent of Jews. There's obviously not a synagogue building. A synagogue is a gathering, and so there can be a Jews who gather just like early Christians gathered in people's houses. They didn't necessarily have a designated building. And I know there were Jews in Leicester that gathered that way. But there is no uh, place that Paul goes. So what we see him doing here first is just going into the marketplace. And here is this lame man listening to Paul speak. And I'm sure Jesus is talking about the resurrection. That's, he always talks about Jesus in the resurrection. Second, 2 Timothy 2.8, which I'll refer to uh, or tell you why I refer to 2 Timothy in just a moment. But, but 2 Timothy 2.8 is a good characterization where Paul says to Timothy, this is how you know my message. This is what I always say. And basically it's that... Jesus is the, uh, God's answer to the promise to David and raised him from the dead. So here he is. We're not told what he was saying, but we know 
that he spoke about the resurrection. And notice verse 7, actually verse 6 and 7, when they went on to Lystra, it says they continued to preach the gospel. So that we know what he's talking about in the marketplace. The emphasis, though, falls on the man's observable faith to be saved. In fact, it says that Paul gazed into his eyes. So here he is speaking, and I do that a lot, and I can tell whether God's moving in your hearts when you're hearing things uh, that he's speaking to you. But he gazed into this man's heart, and it says that the man has faith in the present tense to be saved. Now, every reputable translation says to be healed. And we know from the way the word saved, it's the same word that's used when it talks about the comprehensive salvation of God and, and the changed destiny of every person who turns to the Lord and uh, receives Him. But it was used of deliverance, and the context here tells us that, of course, it has to do with Him being delivered from this congenital malady of lameness. But it in a sense, presages or tells us also that there's a much greater thing going on here, that this man has faith to be saved for eternity, uh, which the physical healing symbolizes and confirms. This is what I wanted you to appreciate. Paul says, stand up. He sees what the Lord is doing and he responds to it. Paul doesn't say, you know, it'd be a great time for a miracle. People are not responding. I've felt that way. I've felt that way. I bet you have too. Sometimes we want some highs, even though we don't like the lows. But he sees what God is doing. And he responds to it, and he says, stand up. But notice, the man exceeds Paul's command. He jumps up. He doesn't just tentatively get up. This guy is following, obviously, what the Lord is doing in his life. And stories could be multiplied. You've probably read them or heard them, where sometimes uh, you're out there and, and you're hesitant to maybe talk about the Lord, and the person that you're talking to almost draws it out of you. They're ahead of you. They're wanting you to catch up with what the Lord is doing and validate what the Lord is doing in their lives. Sometimes we're a little slow to faith. Not to, say, not to measure Paul's faith, but he says, stand up. And this guy jumps up, and he doesn't just stand up, but he actually says, walk around. This guy's on the move. And the people notice it. And their reaction is prominent. The healing really raises a stir. But I just wanted that one thing I wanted us to appreciate is that when we just put the emphasis on Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. They're used interchangeably. You don't have to be commissioned. You already are in your own homes, in life, everywhere you go. We should always have before us this realization that we represent Jesus. We're Jesus people by virtue of the fact that He's our Lord and Savior. And we should expect great things from God. Sometimes we're going to find when we really set him in first place and follow him, 
that, yes, will encounter opposition, even in our own homes. Sometimes when we're doing the right thing, it ruffles the feathers of the people around us. But we need to hold that course. We need to, to serve Him through that. But that's when our faith grows, and that's when we start to see miraculous things occur that strengthen us and remind us that God is living and true. Serve Him with humility. Humility is a natural outcome of genuinely serving the Lord. It certainly grows out of gratitude, seeing the hand of God and His goodness and grace in all of life. But humility often goes unnoticed. It should. Humility does show up when others want to credit you with praise for that which God alone or others rightly deserve. Here in verses 11 through 13, these two, Barnabas and Paul, are praised, and they are praised for things and in ways. They are elevated in the eyes of the people because of what God has done in this healing. They are elevated in a way that just blows our minds here in the 21st century. They call Barnabas Zeus and Paul, who's been the spokesman, Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury in the Roman pantheon. Uh, the point is, Zeus is the chief god. Hermes was the messenger and voice of the gods. So here, they see Paul as the spokesman, the voice, the vehicle of what Barnabas wants to do. And we know uh, from pottery and images of uh, Zeus and Hermes, uh, Hermes looks a little younger a little more spry, so perhaps Barnabas is a little older, more stately, maybe Paul a little, little bit younger at that point. But they say immediately the gods have come down to us in human form. And then the priest of Zeus, from his temple outside the temple, bring oxen, garland, which is a typical of a pagan ceremonies, festivals, and worship, and they're going to sacrifice these bulls. To Barnabas, or Zeus, and Paul, or Hermes. Now this is an interesting thing. There was folklore, we call it folklore, there was religious lore or legend in this entire vicinity, particularly in Lycia. Uh, and it was, as it were, uh, chronicled, it was written down by the poet, the Roman poet Ovid, at the turn of the century. Just some... 45 years before this period of time. And in it, Ovid tells the story of how Zeus and Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury, came to this hill country. And they went from house to house seeking hospitality. But house after house, a thousand in all, rejected them. Treated them rudely. Did not offer them hospitality until they came to a humble uh, little hut of a peasant couple. And they entered, they invited them in, and they gave them the very best of everything they had. And uh, the gods were uh, really hungry and really thirsty, and they basically were eating them out of house and home. 
And uh, they gave them all that they had, but then the food continued to multiply. They became fearful because they recognized something was going on. They wanted to offer prayers to these strangers. The strangers revealed who they were, that they were Zeus and Hermes, and they granted them special favors, but they destroyed the entire vicinity by flood. Now that was the story. So now when these two guys show up, what do you think they're going to do? Treat them disrespectfully? No. And that's why they just go overboard to worship <laughs> Paul and, uh, and Barnabas. People easily confuse the power that heals with the healer himself. But Jesus' people act immediately to set the record straight. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. Now they were speaking in the Laconian dialect of Greek, and Paul and Barnabas were very fluent in Greek, but there were things that they were not obviously picking up. And so they're a little stunned by what's going on. But when they see the oxen coming in, they know they've seen this kind of thing before. That's when they rent their garments, they rush out into the crowd. They say, we are of like feelings or desires as you, which is not something that gods usually exchange with human beings according to Greek and, and Roman uh, uh, thinking. And, and so now, of course, uh, this upsets the people because they're looking for a good feast. They always share in these things. This was going to be an exciting occasion for them, too, to get some meat for a change, some choice meat. And uh, some Jews start to really vocalize. These are guys, just normal people. And so now they pick up rocks and they start throwing them at Paul and, uh, I mean, you know, it doesn't take a very big rock to put you down. And Paul, perhaps knocked out, is thought dead, and they drag him outside the city. But the disciples gather around him and take him back into the city where he recovers. And then the next day, he and Barnabas uh, set out. Here's a, something that I want us to just appreciate about uh, humility. Idolatry diminishes the divine to human size. That's what happens when you see Barnabas and Paul being thought of as gods. That's a, those are small gods. Timothy Keller talked about idolatry in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and repeatedly he used this expression, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. There is a tendency, especially in our culture, of no God, let alone, as in this society, of many gods, for us to bring God down in our own estimation and not expect great things from God. One of the ways that we make sacred the, the living God in our lives is through humility, through gratitude, through appreciation, through recognition, through acknowledgement. Instead of rationalizing things away, seeing life as the gift of God. And that was the essence of his message, as you may have noticed. Even though he's talking to pagans, he doesn't go back and talk about, you know, uh, David 
or some of the specially enshrined things that God had done among His people, the Jews, but he talks in general about general revelation, just as Paul did when he wrote his letter to the church at Rome in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. But opposition comes when you, when you put Him first. And here's the thing that I'd like just emphasize to you, is that when opposition comes, it can be one of the most and this is hard. It's so contrary to our culture and the way we think. But, but you will come alive in the Lord. You will realize His presence and His power in a way that you won't when you shrink back and, and avoid opposition and difficulty. And I know that's, that's telltale for our culture in which we live with a sense of entitlement or people think it odd that bad things happen. Somehow government or or the world just isn't going to isn't supposed to work in which bad things happen to good people just isn't supposed to be sometimes it gets into our thinking too and so we tend to think that you know these kinds of negatives of life fall outside the realm of how God wants to work in our lives and use these things and it is these very things that sometimes demonstrate and magnify the gospel. That communicate to people there's something different about this person because I know if I were going through those difficulties, this would be the way I would be behaving. Because I have no hope and I don't have the reality of God in my life. How warming and comforting to them when the church acts just like the world. But when the church acts in the power of the Holy Spirit, when these difficulties come, people sit up and notice and they say, there is something different. Something amazing did happen here. There's really something more here that, I, that we just don't read here. There's a silent witness in chapter 14 to something we don't see. Someone is touched by the bold and powerful testimony of Paul here to the living and true God. And that person is Timothy. Timothy lived right here in Lystra. In fact, in chapter 16, when Paul returns to Lystra, it's then, at that time, that Timothy becomes a disciple in the, in, the pra, in, the, in the more formal sense. I am convinced, because in chapter uh, 3 of 2 Timothy, he says to, to 2 Timothy in verses 10 and 11, he says, you know the troubles, the opposition, the persecutions that I suffered when I was in Antioch, Pisidia, in Lystra, and in Derby, Iconium, Lystra. Also, from a historical standpoint, we might even say, how do we know what the people were saying if Paul and Barnabas couldn't understand the Lyconian dialect? I think Timothy may have been there. I think he may have witnessed some of these very things. And later, he and Paul exchanged notes on this former experience, maybe Timothy telling him what he had meant to him because he saw something in him in the difficulties. That he stood up for the living and true God. I don't know, that spoke to me so powerfully. But this morning, 
When we think about the fact that Paul said to these pagan people who believed in, in so many gods that Paul says are, are vain, empty, powerless. That's the word uh, that's translated there. He says, turn from your gods to serve the living and true God. And what that means when he says turn, just as he wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, other pagans where he said, you, you turn from useless idols to serve the living and true God. What it meant was no more praying to Tychus, the god of luck, before tossing the dice. No more praying to Asclepius, the god of healing, when you're sick, no more praying to Artemis, the goddess of childbirth, for the protection of a mother and child before birth. I think there's a, a reminder to us that sometimes we're drawn into our culture and our society in a way, and we adopt practices that don't really look to and serve the living and true God. I'm. I'm guilty of this too. And as we, as it were, before the Lord's Supper, this bread and this cup, we have a, 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 an opportunity designed by the Lord Himself in memoriam, that is in memory, in remembrance, to turn to give first place, pride of place to the Lord in our lives. The Spirit is moving this morning in our hearts, speaking to us, searching us out, bringing to mind things in which perhaps we've grown lax or weary, and, and in some ways maybe our commitment has been dulled because in practice, we're not giving Him first place. This morning as we, uh, as we prepare our hearts, the ramifications, you may not be able to appreciate as you face the challenge of trusting God in a new area of your life or an area in which you... You're conditioned, we're conditioned by our society to kind of work out in our own strength. But to trust Him would call us to take a risk, a step of faith. And even though we can't see the ramifications, we can trust God to do things through us that can make a significant difference in our homes in those around us, and in the world in which we live. So as we prepare our hearts to take this bread and this cup, let's just take a moment to set our hearts before the Lord. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, each of us uh, has our own uh, lystra, Leisters of life. Each is unique. But you are the constant. 
We want a full-fledged life with You. We pray, Father, that as we step out in faith and it feels sometimes uh, precarious and the future seems uh, frightening to trust You rather than to maybe handle this in our human ways, uh, the ways of our idol-making hearts. Father, we pray that You'll grow us in our faith that we might have even greater space, bigger eyes to see You in our lives each and every day. Thank You, Father. Nothing stands in the way. It was all taken care of on the cross. There's no past to hold us back. There's no failure that we have not overcome in Christ. Let us let go of those things, Lord, and move with open and free hearts to today and to the future. This is what we celebrate and commemorate in this bread and cup. We thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.